Welcome to another episode of the Student Ministry Podcast by LifeWay. We want to invite you to leave a rating and review if you haven't already done that. This helps other student ministry leaders like you find us and helps us know what you like and what you don't. We appreciate you taking the time to do that. I'm your host, Ben Trueblood, and today's episode is with Jason Gibson. He's a leading U.S. counselor, speaker, and director of the Bab Center for Counseling. Provides guidance to one of the leading counseling centers in the Southeast. Jason has worked with schools, counseling centers, churches around the world, equipping adults who work with children and adolescents with social, emotional, or behavioral issues. With degrees in psychology, social work, and education, Jason's peer-reviewed research has been published in multiple journals, and his content has been featured on Parent TV, Parenting Teens, and Fox. You can connect with Jason on Instagram at lunchwithjason underscore at the very end, so remember that, for ideas about parenting in real life. Jason, let's jump, let's jump right in, because I know that uh, student pastors make referrals uh, of student student walks into their office, um, they determine, hey, this is this is a situation that I really think it would be helpful and healthy for you to have a conversation uh, with therapist, with counselor, with with that. Like I can't do all of this myself. I want to bring in a professional uh, to be involved in this process. Um, but I think it's helpful that we that we carve out some time and just to understand that process. Uh, what happens next? What happens beforehand? Um, so let's start with just a simple question. What would you say to a student pastor that's asking the question, how do I know when it's the right time to refer, to, to call in the professional, so to speak? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and I think it's so important that when you make that determination, that the language that you use is really powerful because what mm. you don't want to say to a student is, hey, you are so broken, I can't do anything with you. Yeah. So you're going to have to go pay somebody that can. So instead of saying that, it's like, hey, I love you. God loves you. And we're going to add an expert to the team. Mm, that's so good. That's right the place where to start because already your students are feeling that something's really wrong with me. And if you can come at it from a team perspective, that would lead into that conversation. So I only say that up front because I want, like that's one of the most important things. As counselors, when we receive students, they come with all sorts of statements that they think people are saying about them. Hmm. So just making sure that you're cautious of that language, that it's pulling people together to help carry along rather than sending you away because you're too much. So, but let's answer that question. Like when um, there's the practical, ethical, spiritual, and legal considerations um, really like you need to bring someone on the counseling team or bring someone on the team, a counselor on the team when the issues that the student is presenting is outside of your comfort level. See, we, we really are fortunate to have some really great institutions that are equipping pastors and student pastors with some really powerful counseling tools. And you may have some really great tools and some experience. You might have walked through your own journey in which you've received some counseling and you've received some healing in your life. And you might be more comfortable talking about a few things. So you might refer just a little bit later Whereas someone just clearly is like, wait, this is way outside of my ballpark. So now's the time to bring somebody in. So there's some variability 
Mm. Um, but whenever you have this feeling in your gut, in your heart, in your spirit that says, wait, this is way bigger than me. That's the moment when you consider inviting somebody. So trust your gut because the Holy Spirit actually talks to you and just go with that. Because the thing is, you would rather be wrong and send someone too early than being wrong and sending someone too late. So if you're going to choose to make a mistake, make the mistake by bringing someone on the care team or the care process a little too early, because that's much less dangerous and much less damaging. Um, Man, I love the phrasing of we're going to bring an expert onto this care team. Uh, And just the way you framed that up at the very beginning, I think is really, really important because from the student pastor side of things, I mean, you, you articulate it so well from the care of this teenager, like, Hey, we love you. We're going to bring someone else here. It also allows the student pastor to stay connected to that process, to not feel like if, if I refer and I think it's the healthy thing to do, that's going to detach me from the care that I believe God's called me to play in, in a, in a pastoral role. Uh, so bring in a part of the team. I really, really love that. And if, if we could, I would love to hear you articulate who, who should be on that team. Uh, mm-hmm. I, and that probably change. you know, different issues require different things, but in general, how would you describe that care team? Yeah. You know, and, and it's right. Different situations, different communities where you may live. Um, the beauty of it is it's, valuable individuals that are invested in the life of this child. Mm. And do you know what's powerful about this is that God's word is so powerful that God created everything, like everything. And that also means that God created science. And what we're talking about here is actually wraparound services, which the research evidence shows that it increases outcomes for teenagers when they receive wraparound services. But that is completely gospel-centered in which we're focused on bringing people in and engaging in a discipleship process. But so jumping into the counseling side of it, um, you've got the the student pastor, and then the key to ministry is knowing your students. So what are the other key things that they do in their life? So let's say that this student is into music. Well, is there either A, someone in your church that does music, or B, is it the band director, the choir director? It's someone else that's in their lives that has the opportunity to speak Mm. life into them. Uh, It could be a coach. Um, It could be a mentor. It could be, if you're leading the student ministry, it could be their small group leader. But the key to it is, if you can do it, to have people that are in the different domains of their life. Because what happens is, I might come to your Wednesday night gathering and feel encouraged and supported. And then I've got to go back to school in which that is the place in which the greatest pain happens in my life. So the power of a student pastor is to build relationships in the school. So even if a teacher that you know that loves Jesus doesn't even have the student, then say, I know school's so tough and I know Mrs. Jones and she is such an encourager. Can we invite her to be on a part of this team? So now when you're at school, you know you've got someone that's close by that cares and it'll encourage you. So maybe it's the pseudo pastor, maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's a coach, but pull together people 
that will actively participate in their lives. And many hands make work light. Mm. You know, you say that in so many places. So as a student pastor, if you're the only one carrying their burdens, it's not sustainable. It's not going to last. And if the needs are super heavy, you're going to get worn out and you're not going to be what they need you to be. But you spread that out amongst those key people in their lives. And if they don't have them, then you insert them. So then everyone comes together. And it's that reminder that maybe that student's shoulders aren't strong enough to carry the problem. But that's why these caring adults are there. We're going to help you carry along. What about the parent side of this? Um, Help a student pastor know the conversation to have with a parent. Um, Mm. Maybe they're in this place where a student has walked into their their office, talked to them after a worship service or something, and said, this is going on in my life. And that leader is kind of saying, okay, uh, this feels a little bit bigger than me. Um, I don't know if it's quite ready for referral yet, but I know I need to talk to a parent at very least. What does that conversation need to look like to, to both honor the parent and to make the student aware, like, Hey, this is something that we're going to need to start bringing in your parents here. Yeah. So I'll give you this idea, but we won't go into it. And then we'll dive deep into that. That conversation with a parent begins when a student becomes a part of your ministry. Mm. See, when a student jumps into your ministry, even if the parent is connected or not connected, you send them an email or you send them a letter or you make a phone call and you say, we're so excited he or she is a part of this ministry. I want you to know how I care for them. That if your child ever comes to me with some heavy stuff, I want you to know that I'm going to honor their confidentiality but I'm going to include you in part of the process. So I never want you to wonder that there's some deep, dark secret that I'm holding that you should know as a parent, that I'm going to listen and I will guide them to a place of, of reporting or coming alongside and telling you what's going on. Because see, if they tell you and you run and tell the parent, they'll never trust you again. That's right. But in this, this is how it'll practically look. Student comes to you, And you know it, like you can tell they're about to drop something on you. And just like I gave the language to use with a student, when you say you're going to bring someone on the team instead of pushing them out to counseling, you, it's so worth your time to write down, I call them on-ramp statements that you practice them and you know them, things you're going to say when this happens. So here's an on-ramp statement. Student comes, you know, they're about to drop something on you and you say, thank you so much for coming. I really sense that what we're about to talk about is critically, critically important. And thank you for trusting me with that information. So now as you're about to tell me, I want you to know a couple of things that are so important that the team is so important. There might be some experts or some people we might need to involve in this. And if you tell me something that is super, super dangerous, there's some things that I'm required to report. I don't want you to be surprised. And now I didn't say it as smooth as I usually do, but it's better that you put that up front mm. and tell them instead of violate them by telling their information. Because if they've worked up enough courage to you to come to you to say something, and then you say, I just want to let you know that I always involve everyone, but I protect you. And they say, oh, never mind. I'm not going to talk to you about it. Well, that's okay. Because now you already know that there's something really, really, really heavy. 
And it's okay that they don't tell you in the moment because the tighter you squeeze and try to man that they tell you, the quicker they run away. Mm. So all you do is you say, well, thank you for letting me know. Thank you for letting me be a trustworthy person. And I'm going to check back in and then make sure you check back in because you've set the stage for them to talk about that. And, and I only bring that up because when a student will come to me and disclose some heavy stuff, I then shift and say, okay, this is important. These are things that your parents will need to know. So we're going to work together. What would be the best way that we can include them in the process? So now instead of being the tattletale, you're now the guide on the side that says, would you like me to tell them for you? So then the student gives you permission to go tell them. Or you can say, would you like me to call them and kind of lay the foundation and then I come over to your house and I sit with you as you tell them. Like you give all of these options that remove the barrier so that they'll be likely to let them know. And the reason why this is so important is because counseling is not for the person. You have to consider the person inside of their environment because you can't separate a kid from their family. Mm. They're absolutely a part of it. So now I, I might not run off and say we have to do that today. But I might say, hey, let's talk about this and then help them develop a plan of sharing this information, because then we're actually empowering them, letting them know that you may not have control over substance use. You may not have control over pornography, sex addictions. You may not have control over cutting. You may not have control over insert all that stuff. But what happening right now? is that I'm linking arms with you because I'm going to show you that you do. And I'm going to be the person that can carry you forward as you start taking the steps to begin to get control and freedom and what's going on in your life. So you're building momentum in that moment, but you're not letting it go off without telling anybody. Yeah. What is the, what is the role of that? The leader look like moving forward. So we've brought the expert now into this. The parents are aware, somebody from school or somebody else in their life, a coach or something that the team is built. When the leader moves out of this place of, okay, I was the original confidant or I, I was, you brought this to me. What's the role that they play moving forward? Once the experts on board, once the parents are involved because I've heard you say more, it's not just a go over here and a, a referral is a get out of my situation. It's actually, let's do this together. So what does that together look like? Yeah. It, because like counseling is cumulative. It's not separative, you know, that coming in, oh my gosh, go see the counselor. Now they disappear. And eventually at some point they're going to show back up in your ministry and then you're going to pick back up. It's not that it's this and that and that because there's just that power of the multiplication. So what it may look like, if you're in a large church, maybe what you do is you get the ball rolling and you talk to the student, who are the key people in your life? And you talk to those people and you invite them to be a part and you help them know what, it, what that might look like. And really what it looks like is just checking in. Hmm. See, people think that counseling is like magical or really, really complicated. All counseling is, is showing up and listening. That's it. If you just show up and That's listen, good. right? 
And, and if you want to go to the next step, just bounce back what they said. You know, oh, I hate this place and I hate my mom. Like, oh my gosh, thanks for sharing that. Like, I hear you. Like, you hate this place and you hate your mom. You just say back. And they're like, well, I don't really hate her. And then you start asking more questions. You're that guide on the side. So, but as that person, if they come to you and say, hey, let's pull some people together, then do the legwork of pulling those people together. And then say, hey, this would be really great if you could check in on her or check in on him just every other week. And then you turn them loose and then check in with the student. What do you need? And, and then pass that back out to make sure that they're in the loop. So then if you're in a large ministry, then maybe that small group leader is the one that's really invested in doing the check-ins. And as the ministry leader, you're just calling the people, checking in, making sure they're doing what they said they would do with that student. You as a student, if you have a larger ministry, you cannot carry that load all the time. But you can do the follow-up to make sure that those people that are wrapping around can can actually do that. Mm-hmm. So it's creating a process and making sure it continues to roll along. Talk us through what happens, like just logistically, because I know that there are probably a lot of leaders who have not been through this process themselves. And so it does there. You, you mentioned a minute ago that that seems like this magical thing, this mysterious thing. And I think it, it does have that feeling for some people that that's something that happens over here and you have to have special certificates and education and I don't really get it, but we know it works. So go here. So talk us through like when somebody refers to you and to, to your center that you, that you run there at the Bab Center, what does that look like? Just practically here are the steps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, so what's interesting, so when a, a, a student comes to counseling, and I mean, there's a million different perspectives. So this can be broad generalizations. And the way that you might counsel someone that's struggling with addictions is different the way you might address someone that's struggling with depression. Um, but the main idea is this. When someone comes into my office, I spend some time identifying what are they coming in with. Now, it's been they describe it many different ways, but typically you, a person is either a consumer or a shopper or a prisoner. Okay. And mm-hmm. what that means is this, they come into counseling and a consumer is like, I'm broken. I'm ready to change. Let's do this. A shopper is my life's pretty bad. I'm not really sure I want to change, but I'm curious as to what this might be like. Then a prisoner is, my parents made me come. That's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. So, so coming in right off the bat, they sit down in my office. I ask questions to identify where are they? Because see, somebody that's ready for change, it's time to run. And somebody that's a prisoner, it's time to build that rapport. And I say to them, I'm just straight up honest. I'm like, I know you don't want to be here because you just told me. So... What do you need to do so that your parents won't make you keep coming back here? (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Because the key to it is, and when you look at the research, the, the number one factor in the success of counseling is the quality of the relationship between the counselor and the person that's coming to counseling. Right. And that's discipleship, investing in people that if that person knows that I care, 
That right there is the biggest key to that counseling. So when the ch- student's a, a prisoner, I just join right where they are. I'm mm. like, I know you want to be here. I am so sorry. What do we need to do so that they don't keep bringing you back? And then they're like, I don't know. So then I'm like, we'll find out. And then next time that we talk, come back and let me know. And then we're going to come up with a plan because I certainly don't want you to think that I'm a miserable person to be with. So it's really this process of taking time to figure out where is this person and then identifying, can they see where they need to be? And if they can't, I'm going to work to help them see that. You cannot get to a destination that you don't know where it is. Hmm. So I spend time helping them see where they can be. And then once they can see that, then we take the time to work on the steps to get there. In the teenage, go ahead. Parents many times think, okay, my kid's doing this. How many sessions is it going to take for them to not do it? (laughs) And I'm like, well, I don't know. How many years did it take you to not let them do it? (laughs) That's good. I'm kidding. Do not say that. (laughs) I heard that Jason said this was the right way to go. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. But, but the, the powerful part of it again is see counseling and the same thing with discipleship is not about creating unhealthy dependence. It's about creating and developing the independent faith, the independent health of the individual so that they can thrive on their own without me having to tell them how to do it. The way to create an unhealthy dependence is somebody coming in and saying, blah, 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 blah. And then I say to them, this is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And I tell them exactly what to do. Because what happens is if they go out and do exactly what I said they need to do and it works, Then they're like, oh my gosh, Jason's so smart. Now, every problem I have, I have to go to Jason and ask him because he's so smart. Or if they go and they try what I told them to do exactly and it doesn't work, then it's, oh my gosh, Jason's a fool. I'm not going to listen to anything that he says. The power of the moment as a counselor is saying, tell me what's going on. Let's look at what's happening. What are the things that you've tried? Let's identify and look, okay, what could you do different? What And just start asking these questions and guiding them along the journey to identifying what needs to happen next. So you're not passive in which you're not saying anything, but you're active as a guide or a coach because you need to give them the opportunity to build their choice muscles so that they're strong enough to make the right choices when you're not there telling them exactly what to do. Yeah, man, that's so good. And I I love how you keep drawing it back to like, Hey, everybody, this is just like discipleship. Like these are parallel paths here because we would say too, like in a student ministry or a church or any discipleship is not saying, this is what you need to, this is what you need to know and do. It's not teaching them what to think. It's teaching them how to think. 
It's teaching them how to take the Bible and live it out, not just constructing this whole system of if you do this stuff and you think and believe these things, then you're good. And I love how you're drawing that parallel between those two and saying, no, it's not just go do this and it'll all be better, but it's decision making and thought process and your attitude and all those things roll up into it. I think that's a really, really helpful parallel to draw for people. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, absolutely. And you know, from the parent perspective, and this is where I think student pastors have such an opportunity to be influential is that because I've got four children of my own. And when my kids are doing something, sometimes my judgment is clouded because I'm at church and my child just ran down the hall screaming and yelling and doing whatever. So I'm like, you got to stop that. But if I kind of step back, really, it's like I'm embarrassed because I'm a behavior consultant and my kid is acting like a crazy loon. So now I'm thinking I'm going to put a squash on that because really I say it's because I want them to act right. But it's because I don't want people to think less of me. So where student pastors are so brilliant in this opportunity is you're you can come alongside a parent and say, hey, I know this must be incredibly scary. You must be, and insert all the feelings that can be associated with it. But I want to give you a different perspective from your child, from your teenager, that because your teenager was late in coming out, and when you came in barefoot, screaming and yelling at your child in front of all of their friends to get their butt out to the car, like what that did was that really embarrassed them. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. now I'm being... I'm being silly, but one of the most powerful things you can do is be an advocate for that student, but in a place of ministry authority, you have the ability to almost translate what the angsty teenager is trying to tell to their parents in a way that can bring understanding to that parent because they're not in an understanding space. Yeah, And you can serve that up because as a student pastor, you are fluent in all of the oddities and intricacies of a teenager. And that's one of the greatest gifts that you can give to a parent is I see your heart is this, but how it comes across is that. And here's a couple of ideas and ways that you might do it different because they can see the love that you give and not just view you as Godzilla and pantyhose that you may be coming across as. Man, (laughs) the embarrassment thing is a real thing. And Like I know they, I'll say it this way. I feel like teenagers, most of them embarrass so much easier than we think they do. Uh, I drop my kids off outside of church and it's like, dad, turn the music down. I don't want to get out of the car with the music too loud. And it's, it's like, I, I don't. I, ha- I don't want you to do these things that are going to embarrass me because it's a big deal in their world. And I think we as parents, uh, I'll speak from the parent of teenagers side of it now. And man, I think it's something we underestimate. Um, so the, the role of the influence that a student pastor can play in that uh, is great. I, d- I don't do uh, everything right with my kids by any stretch of the imagination, but I did do this right. I spoke on a Wednesday night to a group of middle schoolers at our, at our church. Uh, and when I found out that I was going to be doing that, um, my daughter is in the room and I pulled her aside before that night, like early. And I said, 
hey, what are some things that I would do that would embarrass you on Wednesday night? And because like I, I did, if the music too loud is one of them, then I need to know the others so that when I stand up and speak, that you're able to listen and not worry about me doing something that's going to embarrass you in front of your, in front of your friends. Now, I know that that is a very niche youth pastors who also have kids in the ministry that you preach to. That's a very niche audience, but just file it away. It's something to consider. Uh, I vowed long ago, never to tell stories about my kids without first asking their permission to do so. Uh, And I think that's, it's a really, really important thing to consider from a leader. That's such a gift to your children. And they then have permission to help shape some of the things that you're going to talk about. So now instead of them like, oh my gosh, he's embarrassing me. Now it's like, wait, that was a story that he and I talked about that could be a part of. And it, it kind of flips the script on that. I think a really great student ministry idea, offer a parent session that says this, 10 ways you embarrass your teenagers that you don't even know Mm. and communicate that. I think parents would jump on that because to be clear as a parent with social media, we have literally quadrupled our ability to embarrass our kids now. Oh my goodness. Yes. And, and it's done. Like you don't even know, like you're like, Oh my gosh, that was so cute. And like my teenagers, like, dad, please don't ever say something's cute underneath, you know? So it would be a gift to parents as a student pastor, helping us know the ways we embarrass them without even understanding. Man, I like that session. That sounds like it could be an upcoming lunch with Jason type of, uh, type of situation there. (laughs) You could run with that. I like it a lot. (laughs) That's great. That's great. So you have, uh, you are the director of, uh, the Bab Center for Counseling. And, um, you're, you're deeply entrenched in this life and helping people. And I know that that the therapists and counselors that exist there, what are you seeing? Uh, every time we have you on, I think it's important to ask this question. What are you seeing issue wise in teenagers right now? That's on the rise. And we're, you know, at the recording of this, we've just turned the calendar, uh, about a month ago into 2021 from an unprecedented year and all of those things. So what are you seeing that you think leaders of teenagers, parents who happen upon this podcast need to be aware of what's going on in their culture? So a hundred percent anxiety, like Hmm. anxiety is on explosive, explosive growth, right? Um, it was on a trajectory of explosive growth and then just the current environment has just made it unbelievably worse because what we have is we have an unbelievably healthy dose. Let me rephrase that an unhealthy tsunami of isolation. Mm. So you may have students that are incredibly introverted, right? That they actually need to be pushed because they need to experience and learn the skill of being an introverted person. And, and just being honest, like student ministry, most times caters to your extroverted kids. Yeah, that's true. So, so as a student pastor, be acutely aware 
that like not every child wants to be called on stage to stick their face in chocolate pudding in a diaper. Yeah. So being aware of that, but finding ways in which introverted kids now have been at home for nine to 11 months. So coming back into these situations are going to be in the different direction that things have been heading. So identifying on ramps and engagement ways that someone that's naturally introverted that hasn't been engaged with people in quite some time can feel a part, but not feel overly pressured. Mm. So, because what happens is it just shoots anxiety way up and that's such an aversive mind, thought, body experience that they're going to run from that because that's what your body teaches you. It's like, whoa, this isn't safe. Get out of here. My heart's pounding. My hands are sweating. So just be aware of that. But on the flip side, go ahead. Can we, I would love to camp out there for just a second, if we could on the introversion and student ministry, because you brought it up and you made the statement that most of student ministry caters to extroverted type of individuals. And you mentioned introverted, sometimes needing a little push, uh, man, that had my wheels turning, um, in a way that I don't think I've considered before. And the place that I went to immediately was a camp or a big event or a disciple now in there is such a, a, and I did it, a push to be a part of this thing, be a part of this thing, be a part of this thing, because we believe deeply that it could have a really positive impact on their lives. But I don't know that I've ever considered that there is a group of students who choose not to go to those things because they're introverted. And they just don't want, like, they love Jesus. They want to grow. They want to be, like, they thrive in that small group. They thrive in a Tuesday night home group. And they just don't want to put themselves in a situation like a camp that where they might end up doing something that they know, I don't want to feel the pressure to do this thing I'm not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And, man, I would love to hear, like, what is the push look like there? What does the push look like to, hey, embracing the community of our faith is a positive and necessary thing, but we also want to respect who you are and how you've been made to be. Uh, Man, I'd love, I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I do recognize that just saying introvert, extrovert is some broad generalization. Absolutely. Um, but however, like speaking to that point, um, the, the key to it is, is, is safety. See, a meaningful relationship that will always show up will overcome almost every time the aversive nature of what's happening in the environment. Okay. So let's take, let's take a camp experience, right? That recognizing that there's a set of students that are introverted that will not go to camp because they know they're going to be stuck in a field throwing a giant beach ball around while everyone's <laughs> screaming and spraying them with sour, uh, with shaving cream. Yeah. Okay. So that might not be what they would choose to do, but if they had a small group leader that poured into them, that invested in them, that met them right where they were, that built a relationship with them that happened all throughout the year, the fall and then the spring, 
So when that small group leader goes to that introverted student and says, hey, we've got camp and I have to work all week. So I get to see you on Wednesday or I get to see you on Sunday. And I would love for you to come and go to camp because I'm taking the week off from work and we could actually be together that whole week mm. because this summer and and then just depending on how well you know him, you say like, I know that you don't like this and like that, but I'm going to be right there with you. The power of the investment and that relationship will overcome the aversiveness of the moment. So that's where getting kids to camp starts in August mm. and pouring into them. And so, I, and then when you get to camp, then delivering on that promise yeah. of being there present. And maybe a little leniency on everybody has to have the shaving cream and the beach ball. <laughs> yes. And, and this is where, and this is why it's so important. You know, the older I get, like I'm just dosed, doused over and over in humility. I realize how much I don't know that, you know, recognizing all this now that as a student pastor, it's not possible for you to know every single thing about every single student. Yeah. So you empower your small group leaders to know that. So that when you're planning camp and you're doing your leader training, then you just say to your leaders, hey, I know some of this stuff is going to be very, very, very painful for some of your students. Talk to me individually about that so that we can make a plan going into it. Because when you go to camp, you already have a schedule. So now you're empowering your leaders to communicate about that. So you plan ahead of time. And that's a gift to that student because not only am I having to find a way to get sick, to go back to the cabin, to not do that. <laughs> I've got a, a, I've got a, a volunteer that says to me, Hey, we're about to do this, you know, cotton candy, marshmallow stuff thing. I don't like that. And I don't think you might not either. So will you come over here and I'm going to give you my iPhone and I want you to go around taking videos of everybody. So see, what I did was I didn't say, oh, something's wrong with you. Go sit in the corner mm -hmm. or go sit in the cabin. What I did was I constructed an experience that allowed them to participate and be a part, but it didn't put them in a place that made them feel that that's so aversive that they'll never go to camp again. Yeah, man. Thanks for following the rabbit trail. That's, that's good, good stuff to consider and, and intentionality with how, with how we plan. Um, so back on issues that you're seeing, you were talking before the anxiety is through the roof and what you're, and what you're experiencing. Absolutely. It, it, it is. And like, just keeping it real. Kids have been home. School has been online. Pornography is just whoop, way up. Like pornography was already there, right? This is just escalated. And it's not so much that kids are like, oh, I'm going to look at porn. But the reality is kids are on all the time. And it's just, it's just, you know, that if you stand around the mud pit, eventually you're going to get mud on you. Mm -hmm. So, um, but recognizing that, uh, not coming at it from a shame-based approach, but a realistic approach and just recognizing that that's there. Um, I, I don't think a lot of people think about it, but it's just as much a female problem as it is a male problem. Um, Males are more likely to share it with their friends. Females are more likely to hide it and not let anybody know. Um, so you can't make some assumptions. Uh, the sexting and those things, just again, that's on the rise just because there's a lot of dead time. 
parents are working in the other room or parents are working in their jobs and um, there's just not some naturally occurring boundaries. You know, yeah. kids are at school, they're less likely to look at porn. Now they're at home a whole lot. It just, it just happens. Um, so, but that transitions to all kinds of things, right? Because pornography does all kinds of things. It inserts things like, see, nobody struggled with saying cuss words until you heard a cuss word because like you didn't even know that existed. The same thing. People don't struggle with some of the sexuality stuff because they just didn't know it existed. But now that they know because they saw it Hmm. and now they're like, what do I do with that? But I'm not going to ask somebody. So then they struggle. Like, is this reality? Is it not reality? So it just, it just rolls on and it expands and expands and expands. Um, so I will say cutting and, uh, and, and engaging in sex and sexual acts, that's definitely on the rise. It's just isolation is an incubator for heartache and brokenness. And that is the place where we are. Yeah. Um, so it's just being aware of that. I, I, there's something that I think that's really important just to remind everyone that things that you are told are holy and completely spiritual. But we must not forget that things that you are told are legal. Like as a student pastor, there are things that the law requires you to do that you do not have an exception. And that if you don't respond to these things in the way that's required by the laws and regs of your state, then you and your church will be legally liable for not responding in the way that your state has said that you must respond Mm. So it's so critical. And specifically, I'm talking about abuse, that if there is any abuse that happens, the state has hired people that is their determination if it's abuse or if it's not abuse. So you must report it, that if you hear directly that abuse has happened, then you must report that that abuse happened. Now, I highly, highly encourage you. You must report that to the people that you report to because everyone must be in the loop. But if you take that, you were told directly that an allegation of abuse. And if you go tell your executive pastor and your executive pastor does not report it, you are still liable. See the executive pastor heard it secondhand. Mm -hmm. The executive pastor is not required by law to report. You did. So you must report. So if it runs up the chain and they say, we will report it, then you say, okay, I need a case number when you report it so that I may put that in my records. Anytime you make a report, there's always a case number. You need to report and you need to write the case number. Most of your answers, they're going to ask you 7,000 questions. And most of your answers are going to be this. I don't know. Hmm. I don't have information. So don't make stuff up or don't feel the pressure to ask. They're going to say, what did you hear? And you'll say, student A told me that 25-year-old person this engaged in this act. And they'll say, okay. And they'll say, okay, what location did this happen? If you don't know, say, I don't know. Don't try to figure it out. You're not the investigator, but you need to report it. And at the end, they'll probably tell you, do you want a case number? But if they don't, you say, can I have a case number, please, for my records? Mm that so that's super super helpful one more legal thing that'll be really helpful and this is just more practical that when you refer a student to a counselor 
a counselor falls under the state guidelines in which they can neither confirm or deny that that person goes to counseling. So this is why you, it's really important to talk to a parent. The only person that can legally give permission for you to talk to that counselor is the parent. It is the legal guardian of that child. So in the legal realm, that if you're inviting a professional to be a part of the team, you talk to the parent, you help them get set up with a counselor, then say to the parent, I would love if you're comfortable being able to talk to the counselor so that I can learn from them what I can do to help with the care of the student. Would you please sign a release of information with the counselor that gives them permission to talk to me? And then you put that on them. Because I get calls all the time from student pastors and other pastors, and I can't confirm or deny. Yeah. So then follow up with the student or I'm follow up with the parent and say, Hey, could you sign that? Cause I would love to be able to talk to that counselor because once you have a release of information signed, then you can talk freely and that helps that team really go. And that team really grow. Man, I, Katie, Nathan, like I'm, that's so helpful to know because we were in an environment in Phoenix, not too long ago. Uh, Jason, we had a, a group of about, um, 30 or so student pastors socially distanced in a room uh, where we were talking through a uh, student pastor issue. And this came up. And one of the things that pretty much universally around the room was that was stated was that, and like, I only had one counseling class in seminary or in my undergrad degree. And so I'm not equipped basically like I'm not equipped for these issues how do I handle this? And so, you know, to bring it back around to the very beginning of where we started with, how do I know when to refer? And uh, you made the statement that you can't carry it all yourself, that you have to build a team. I mean, and that's, guys, we were in that room and they were saying like, I don't have the tools that I feel like I need in this moment in student ministry to be able to effectively counsel. It's true. That was definitely the first thing that came to mind when you said that was just hearing from everybody. I just had one class on this. And it's true. Like your job as a student pastor is not to be a counselor. It has times to counsel. But I think knowing when when to bring somebody on to that child's team is super, super important. Absolutely. Hey, I will say this. Do you know how we talked about there's introverted students? Yeah. Do you know that there, there's introverted volunteers? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Been there, done that. <laughs> that right? That's producer Nathan, right? So I would love, like, it would be beautiful to have, find some introverted volunteers. They're not leading a group, but what they are, they are your specialists. And you say to them, these students need someone to love on them and check in on them and just have a conversation with them. And man, your introverted volunteer, that may be something that they love to do. Because they're not up front. They just quietly sit next to them while they're in the middle of your ministry event and just have a little conversation. I think that's super important, too. That was another thing that came up in that room was talking about, especially now that some churches are going back to in-room experiences, particularly those introverted students have so much anxiety because everybody's just been at home and alone and you've just compounded that issue that there's anxiety over just regular student ministry activities, you know, not even thinking about camp or larger events like that. So I think having that influence and knowing who your volunteers are 
and empowering them to sort of play to their own personality is really helpful. Yeah, I think for me, looking back, that was me. I started out, you know, kind of soundboard, like that's a great place to hide, right? But a needed place, but that gave me the confidence to start volunteering in other areas and then starting teaching students how to do sound. And eventually that led to where, you know, I got comfortable leading a small group, you know, and then becoming an interim student pastor, not afraid to stand on stage and do that. But, you know, it was amazing to see kind of that transformation from more of an introverted thing to, you know, God bringing some of those things out along the way. So, man, there are... uh naturally introverted student pastors that might be, or leaders that might be listening to this right now. And they're going, you guys, how could you not have thought about this before now? Like, of course this is a thing. And all, maybe not all, a lot of extroverted youth pastors are going, huh, I need, maybe I should think about this a little more in some different ways to handle it. Jason, I really appreciate, um, Man, the parallel of discipleship and counseling. Uh, I so appreciate the language that you've given us today around constructing a care team. Uh, Podcast listeners, like that's huge language for you to use continually, even in a situation where the expert doesn't need to be brought in. You, by recruiting and bringing leaders into your ministry are in the process of developing a care team for the students in your ministry. You heard Jason say it. You can't shoulder all of this yourself, whether the issues are what we would describe. And I hesitate to describe it this way, whether the issues that we have walking into our office are big issues or the normal issues of student ministry, you still can't shoulder it all yourself. And so I think that building a care team language can really help the leaders in your ministry have more to hold on to in terms of what their role is as a small group leader, as a greeter on at your worship service when you have those again, depending on your context and all of those things. Uh, And then the super practical of, hey, here's the legal process and here's what you need to do So, so helpful today, Jason. Thank you for your time and being willing to be a part. Absolutely. This has been another episode of the Student Ministry Podcast by LifeWay. We will see you next time.